Hello everybody, welcome back to Rob Reads To You. We are coming towards the end of Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Uh, in our last installment, we had two, uh, you know, two shocker chapters. Uh, one where it turns out that Mr. Harrison was actually married, but his wife left him and then he left and went to Avonlea. And anyway, the notice that Anne and Gilbert put into the paper about, you know, the blind item about him getting married that they made up, Got her attention, she came back and moved back in with him, and everybody ended up pretty happy. Uh, and then uh, Mrs. Rachel Lynn's husband uh, passed away, uh, even though we'd never really met him before. Um, you know, Mrs. Lynn was understandably sad about it, I guess. Um, anyway, it turns out she's going to move in with Marilla, help Marilla take care of Davy and Dora, and that's going to free Anne up to go to school. So, now, we're going to continue on with Chapter 27, An Afternoon at the Stone House. Where are you going all dressed up, Anne? Davy wanted to know. You look bully in that dress. Anne had come down to dinner in a new dress of pale green muslin, the first color she had worn since Matthew's death. It became her perfectly, bringing out all the delicate, flower-like tints of her face and the gloss and burnish of her hair. Davy, how many times have I told you that you mustn't use that word? She rebuked. I'm going to Echo Lodge. Take me with you, entreated Davy. I would if I were driving, but I'm going to walk and it's too far for your eight-year-old legs. Besides, Paul is going with me and I fear you don't enjoy yourself in his company. Oh, I like Paul lots better than I did, said Davy, beginning to make fearful inroads into his pudding. Since I've got pretty good myself, I don't mind his being gooder so much. If I can keep on, I'll catch up with him some day, both in legs and goodness. Besides, Paul's real nice to us second primer boys in school. He won't let the other big boys meddle with us, and he shows us lots of games. How came Paul to fall into the brook at noon hour yesterday? asked Anne. I met him on the playground, such a dripping figure that I sent him home pr or sent him promptly home for dry clothes without waiting to find out what had happened. Well, it was partly his accident, explained Davy. He stuck his head in on purpose, but the rest of him fell in accidentally. We was all down at the brook, and Prilly Rogerson got mad at Paul about something. She's awful mean and hard, anyway, if she is pretty. And said that his grandmother put his hair up in curl rags every night. Paul wouldn't have minded what she said, I guess, but Gracie Andrews laughed. And Paul got awful red, because Gracie's his girl, you know. He's clean gone on her. Brings her flowers and carries her books as far as the shore road. He got as red as a beet and said his grandmother didn't do any such thing, and his hair was born curly. And then he laid down on the bank and stuck his head right into the spring to show him. Oh, it wasn't the spring we drank out of, seeing a horrified look on Marilla's face. It was the little one lower down. But the bank's awful slippy, and Paul went right in. I tell you, he made a bully splash. Oh, Anne, Anne, I didn't mean to say that. It just slipped out before I thought. He made a splendid splash. But he looked so funny when he crawled out all wet and muddy. The girls laughed more than ever, but Gracie didn't laugh. She looked sorry. Gracie's a nice girl, but she's got a snub nose. When I get big enough to have a girl, I won't have one with a snub nose. I'll pick one with a pretty nose like yours, Anne. A boy who makes such a mess of syrup all over his face when he is eating his pudding will never get a girl to look at him, said Marilla severely. But I'll wash my face before I go courting protested Davy, trying to improve matters by rubbing the back of his hand over the smears. And I'll wash behind my ears, too, without being told. 
I remembered to this morning, Marilla. I don't forget half as often as I did. But, and Davy sighed, there's so many more cor- or so many corners about a fellow that it's awful hard to remember them all. Well, if I can't go to Miss Lavender's, I'll go over and see Mrs. Harrison. Mrs. Harrison's an awful nice woman, I tell you. She keeps a jar of cookies in her pantry of purpose for little boys, and she always gives me the scrapings out of a pan she's mixed up a plum cake in. A good many plums stick to the sides, you see. Mr. Harrison was always a nice man, but he's twice as nice since he got married over again. I guess getting married makes folks nicer. Why don't you get married, Marilla? I want to know. Marilla's state of single blessedness had never been a sore point with her, so she answered amiably, with an exchange of significant looks with Anne, that she supposed it was because nobody would have her. But maybe you never asked anybody to have you, protested Davy. Oh, Davy, said Dora primly, shocked into speaking without being spoken to. It's the men that have to do the asking. I don't know why they have to do it always, grumbled Davy. Seems to me everything's put on the men in this world. Can I have some more pudding, Marilla? You've had as much as was good for you, said Marilla, but she gave him a moderate second helping. I wish people could live on pudding. Why can't they, Marilla? I want to know. Because they'd soon get tired of it. I'd like to try that for myself, said skeptical Davy. But I guess it's better to have pudding only on fish and company days than none at all. They never have any at Milty Bolter's. Milty says when company comes, his mother gives them cheese and cuts it herself. One little bit apiece and one over for manners. If Milty Bolter talks like that about his mother, at least you needn't repeat it, said Marilla severely. Bless my soul! Davy had picked this expression up from Mr. Harrison and used it with great gusto. Milty meant it as a compliment. He's awful proud of his mother, because folks say she could scratch a living on a rock. I... I suppose them pesky hens are in my pansy bed again, said Marilla, rising and going out hurriedly. The slandered hens were nowhere near the pansy bed, and Marilla did not even glance at it. Instead, she sat down on the cellar hatch and laughed until she was ashamed of herself. When Anne and Paul reached the stone house that afternoon, they found Miss Lavender and Charlotta the Fourth in the garden, weeding, raking, clipping, and trimming as if for dear life. Miss Lavender herself, all gay and sweet in the frills and laces she loved, dropped her shears and ran joyously to meet her guests, while Charlotta the Fourth grinned cheerfully. "'Welcome, Anne. I thought you'd come today. You belong to the afternoon, so it brought you. Things that belong together are sure to come together. What a lot of trouble they would save some people if they only knew it. But they don't. And so they waste beautiful energy moving heaven and earth to bring things together that don't belong. And you, Paul, why, you've grown. You're half a head taller than when you were here before. Yes, I've begun to grow like pigweed in the night, as Mrs. Lynde says.' said Paul, in frank delight over the fact. Grandma says it's the porridge taking effect at last. Perhaps it is. Goodness knows, Paul sighed deeply. I've eaten enough to make anyone grow. I do hope now that I've begun I'll keep on till I'm as tall as father. He is six feet, you know, Miss Lavender. Yes, Miss Lavender did know. The flush on her pretty cheeks deepened a little. She took Paul's hand on one side and Anne's on the other and walked to the house in silence. "'Is it a good day for the echoes, Miss Lavender?' queried Paul anxiously. The day of his first visit had been too windy for echoes, and Paul had been much disappointed. "'Yes, just the best kind of a day,' answered Miss Lavender, rousing herself from her reverie. "'But first we are all going in to have something to eat. 
I know you two folks didn't walk all the way back here through these those beechwoods without getting hungry, and Charlotta the Fourth and I can eat any hour of the day. We have such obliging appetites. So we'll just make a raid on the pantry. Fortunately, it's lovely and full. I had a presentment that I was going to have company today, and Charlotta the Fourth and I prepared. I think you are one of the people who always have nice things in their pantry, declared Paul. Grandma's like that, too. But she doesn't approve of snacks between meals. I wonder, he added meditatively, if I ought to eat them away from home when, she, when I know she doesn't approve. Oh, I don't think she would disapprove after you have had a long walk. That makes a difference, said Miss Lavender, exchanging amused glances with Anne over Paul's brown curls. I suppose that snacks are extremely unwholesome. That is why we have them so often at Echo Lodge. We, Charlotte the Fourth and I, live in defiance of every known law of diet. We eat all sorts of indigestible things whenever we happen to think of it, by day or night, and we flourish like green bay trees. We are always intending to reform. When we read any article in a paper warning us against something we like, we cut it out and pin it up on the kitchen wall so that we remember it. But we never can, somehow, until after we've gone and eaten that very thing. Nothing has ever killed us yet, but Charlotta the Fourth has been known to have bad dreams after we had eaten doughnuts and mince pie and fruitcake before we went to bed. Grandma lets me have a glass of milk and a slice of bread and butter before I go to bed, and on Sunday nights she puts jam on the bread, said Paul, so I'm always glad when it's Sunday night, for more reasons than one. Sunday is a very long day on the shore road. Grandma says it's all too short for her, and that Father never found Sundays tiresome when he was a little boy. It wouldn't seem so long if I could talk to my rock people, but he'd never do that because Grandma doesn't approve of it on Sundays. I think a good deal, but I'm afraid my thoughts are worldly. Grandma says we should never think anything but religious thoughts on Sundays. But Teacher here said once that every really beautiful thought was religious, no matter what it was about or what day we thought it on. But I feel sure Grandma thinks that sermons and Sunday school lessons are the only things you can think truly religious thoughts about. And when it comes to a difference of opinion between Grandma and Teacher, I don't know what to do. In my heart, Paul laid his hand on his breast and raised very serious blue eyes to Miss Lavender's immediately sympathetic face. I agree with Teacher. But then, you see, Grandma has brought Father up her way and made a brilliant success of him. And Teacher has never brought anybody up yet, though she's helping with Davy and Dora. But you can't tell how they'll turn out till they are grown up. So, sometimes, I feel as if it might be safer to go by Grandma's opinions. I think it would, agreed Anne solemnly. Anyway, I dare say that if your Grandma and I both got down to what we really do mean under our different ways of expressing it, we'd find out we both meant the same thing. You'd better go by her way of expressing it, since it's been the result of experience. We'll have to wait until we see how the twins do turn out before we can be sure that my way is equally good. After lunch, they went back to the garden, where Paul made the acquaintance of the echoes, to his wonder and delight, while Anne and Miss Lavender sat on the stone bench under the poplar and talked. So you were going away in the fall, said Miss Lavender wistfully. I ought to be glad for your sake, Anne, but I'm horribly, selfishly sorry. I shall, I shall miss you so much. Oh, sometimes I think it is of no use to make friends. 
They only go out of your life after a while and leave a hurt that is worse than the emptiness before they came. That sounds like something Miss Eliza Andrews might say, but never Miss Lavender, said Anne. Nothing is worse than emptiness, and I'm not going out of your life. There are such things as letters and vacations. Dearest, I'm afraid you're looking a little pale and tired. Oh, hoo, 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 went Paul on the dyke, where he had been making noises diligently. Not all of them melodious in the making, but all coming back transmuted into the very gold and silver of sound made by the fairy alchemists over the river. Miss Lavender made an impatient movement with her pretty hands. I'm just tired of everything, even of the echoes. There's nothing in my life but echoes. Echoes of lost hopes and dreams and joys. They're beautiful and mocking. Oh, Anne, it's hard of me to talk like this when I have company. It's just that I'm getting old and it doesn't agree with me. I know I'll be fearfully cranky by the time I'm sixty. But perhaps all I need is a course of blue pills. At this moment, Charlotte the Fourth, who had disappeared after lunch, returned and announced that the northeast corner of Mr. John Kimball's pasture was red with early strawberries, and wouldn't Miss Shirley like to go and pick some? "'Early strawberries for tea!' exclaimed Miss Lavender. "'Oh, I'm not so old as I thought, and I don't need a single blue pill. Girls, when you come back with your strawberries, we'll have tea out here under the silver poplar. I'll have it all ready for you with home-grown cream.' Anne and Charlotte the Fourth accordingly betook themselves back to Mr. Kimball's pasture, a green, remote place where the air was as soft as velvet, and fragrant as a bed of violets, and golden as amber. "'Oh, isn't it sweet and fresh back here?' breathed Anne. "'I just feel as if I were drinking in the sunshine.' "'Yes, ma'am, so do I. That's just exactly how I feel, too, ma'am,' agreed Charlotte the Fourth. Who would have said precisely the same thing if Anne had remarked that she felt like a pelican of the wilderness? Always after Anne had visited Echo Lodge, Charlotte the Fourth mounted to her little room over the kitchen and tried before her looking-glass to speak and look and move like Anne. Charlotte could never flatter herself that she quite succeeded, but practice makes perfect, as Charlotte had learned at school, and she fondly hoped that in time she might catch the trick of that dainty uplift of chin, that quick, starry outflashing of eyes, that fashion of walking as if you were a bough swaying in the wind. It seemed so easy when you watched Anne. Charlotte the Fourth admired Anne wholeheartedly. It was not that she thought her so very handsome. Diana Barry's beauty of crimson cheek and black curls was much more to Charlotte the Fourth's taste than Anne's moonshine charm of luminous gray eyes and the pale, ever-changing roses of her cheeks. "'But I'd rather look like you than be pretty,' she told Anne sincerely. Anne laughed, sipped the honey from the tribute, and cast away the sting. She was used to taking her compliments mixed. Public opinion never agreed on Anne's looks. People who had heard her called handsome met her and were disappointed. People who had heard her called plain saw her and wondered where other people's eyes were. Anne herself would never believe that she had any claim to beauty. When she looked in the glass, all she saw was a little pale face with seven freckles on the nose thereof. Her mirror never revealed to her the elusive, ever-varying play of feeling that came and went over her features like a rosy, illuminating flame or the charm of dream and laughter alternating in her big eyes. While Anne was not beautiful in any strictly defined sense of the word, she possessed a certain evasive charm 
and distinction of appearance that left beholders with a pleasurable sense of satisfaction in that softly rounded girlhood of hers, with all its strongly felt potentialities. Those who knew Anne best felt, without realizing that they felt it, that her greatest attraction was the aura of possibility surrounding her, the power of future development that was in her. She seemed to walk in an atmosphere of things about to happen. As they picked, Charlotta the Fourth confided to Anne her fears regarding Miss Lavender. The warm-hearted little handmaiden was honestly worried over her adored mistress's condition. "'Miss Lavender isn't well, Miss Shirley, ma'am. I'm sure she isn't, though she never complains. She hasn't seemed like herself this long while, ma'am, not since that day you and Paul were here together before. I feel sure she caught cold that night, ma'am. After you and him had gone, she went out and walked in the garden for long after dark with nothing but a little shawl on her. There was a lot of snow on the walks, and I feel sure she got a chill, ma'am. Ever since then I've noticed her acting tired and lonesome-like. She don't seem to take an interest in anything, ma'am. She never pretends company's coming, nor fixes up for it, nor nothing, ma'am. It's only when you come she seems to chirk up a bit. And the worst sign of all, Miss Shirley, ma'am. Charlotta the Fourth lowered her voice, as if she were about to tell some exceedingly weird and awful symptom indeed. Is that she never gets cross now when I breaks things. Why, Miss Shirley, ma'am, yesterday I broke her green and yellow bowl that all that's always stood on the bookcase. Her grandmother brought it out from England, and Miss Lavender was awful choice of it. I was dusting it just as careful, Miss Shirley, ma'am, and it slipped out, so fashion, afore I could grab hold of it, and broke into about forty million pieces. I tell you, I was sorry and scared. I thought Miss Lavender would scold me awful, ma'am, and I'd rather she had than take it at the way she did. She just come in and hardly looked at it and said, It's no matter, Charlotta. Take up the pieces and throw them away. Just like that, Miss Shirley, ma'am. Take up the pieces and throw them away. As if it wasn't her grandmother's bowl from England. Oh, she isn't well, and I feel awful bad about it. She's got nobody to look after her but me. Charlotta the Fourth's eyes brimmed up with tears. Anne patted the little brown paw holding the cracked pink cup sympathetically. I think Miss Lavender needs a change, Charlotta. She stays here alone too much. Can't we induce her to go away for a little trip? Charlotta shook her head with, with its rampant bows disconsolately. I don't think so, Miss Shirley, ma'am. Miss Lavender hates visiting. She's only got three relations she ever visits, and she says she just goes to see them as a family duty. Last time, when she come home, she said she wasn't going to visit for family duty no more. I've come home in love with loneliness, Charlotta, she says to me, and I never want to stray from my own vine and fig tree again. My relations try so hard to make an old lady of me, and it has a bad effect on me. Just like that, Miss Shirley, ma'am. It has a very bad effect on me so I don't think it would do any good to coax her to go visiting. We must see what can be done, said Anne decidedly, as she put the last possible berry in her pink cup. Just as soon as I have my vacation, I'll come through and spend a whole week with you. We'll have a picnic every day and pretend all sorts of interesting things and see if we can't cheer Miss Lavender up. That will be the very thing, Miss Shirley, ma'am, exclaimed Charlotte Fourth in rapture. She was glad for Miss Lavender's sake and for her own, too. With a whole week in which to study Anne constantly, she would surely be able to learn how to move and behave like her. When the girls got back to Echo Lodge, 
They found that Miss Lavender and Paul had carried the little square table out of the kitchen to the garden and had everything ready for tea. Nothing ever tasted so delicious as those strawberries and cream, eaten under a great blue sky all curdled over with fluffy little white clouds, and in the long shadows of the wood with its lispings and its murmurings. After tea, Anne helped Charlotta wash the dishes in the kitchen, while Miss Lavender sat on the stone bench with Paul and heard all about his rock people. She was a good listener, this sweet Miss Lavender, but just at the last it struck Paul that she had suddenly lost interest in the twin sailors. "'Miss Lavender, why do you look at me like that?' he asked gravely. "'How do I look, Paul?' "'Just as if you were looking through me at somebody I put you in mind of,' said Paul, who had such occasional flashes of uncanny insight that it wasn't quite safe to have secrets when he was about." "'You do put me in mind of somebody I knew long ago,' said Miss Lavender dreamily. "'When you were young?' "'Yes, when I was young. "'Do I seem very old to you, Paul?' "'Do you know? I can't make up my mind about that,' said Paul confidentially. "'Your hair looks old. I never knew a young person with white hair. "'But your eyes are as young as my beautiful teacher's when you laugh. "'I tell you what, Miss Lavender,' Paul's voice and face were as solemn as a judge's. I think you would make a splendid mother. You have just the right look in your eyes, the look my little mother always had. I think it's a pity you haven't any boys of your own. I have a little dream boy, Paul. Oh, have you really? How old is he? About your age, I think. He ought to be older because I dreamed him long before you were born. But I'll never let him get any older than eleven or twelve. Because if I did some day, he might grow up altogether, and then I'd lose him. I know, nodded Paul. That's the beauty of dream people. They stay any age you want them. You and my beautiful teacher and me, myself, are the only folks in the world that I know of that have dream people. Isn't it funny and nice we should all know each other? But I guess that kind of people always find each other out. Grandma never has dream people, and Mary Jo thinks I'm wrong in the upper story because I have them. "'But I think it's splendid to have them. "'You know, Miss Lavender. "'Tell me about your little dream boy.' "'He has blue eyes and curly hair. "'He steals in and wakens me with a kiss every morning. "'Then all day he plays here in the garden, "'and I play with him. "'Such games as we have. "'We run races and talk with the echoes, "'and I tell him stories.' And when twilight comes, I know, interrupted Paul eagerly, he comes and sits beside you, so, because of course at twelve he'd be too big to climb into your lap, and lays his head on your shoulder, so, and you put your arms about him and hold him tight, tight, and rest your cheek on his head. Yes, that's the very way. Oh, you do know, Miss Lavender. Anne found the two of them there when she came out of the stone house and something in Miss Lavender's face made her hate to disturb them. "'I am afraid we must go, Paul, if we want to get home before dark. Miss Lavender, I'm going to invite myself to Echo Lodge for a whole week pretty soon.' "'If you come for a week, I'll keep you for two, threatened Miss Lavender. Chapter 28 The Prince Comes Back to the Enchanted Palace the last day of school came and went, 
A triumphant semi-annual examination was held, and Anne's pupils acquitted themselves splendidly. At the close, they gave her an address and a writing desk. All the girls and ladies present cried, and some of the boys had it cast up to them later on that they cried too, although they always denied it. Mrs. Harmon Andrews, Mrs. Peter Sloan, and Mrs. William Bell walked home together and talked things over. I do think it is such a pity Anne is leaving when the children seem so much attached to her, sighed Mrs. Peter Sloan, who had a habit of sighing over everything and even finished off her jokes that way. To be sure, she added hastily, we all know we'll have a good teacher next year, too. Jane will do her duty, I've no doubt, said Mrs. Andrews rather stiffly. I don't suppose she'll tell the children quite so many fairy tales or spend so much time roaming about the woods with them. But she has her name on the inspector's roll of honor, and the Newbridge people are in a terrible state over her leaving. I'm real glad Anne is going to college, said Mrs. Bell. She has always wanted it, and it will be a splendid thing for her. Well, I don't know. Mrs. Andrews was determined not to agree fully with anybody that day. I don't see that Anne needs any more education. She'll probably be marrying Gilbert Blythe if his infatuation for her lasts till he gets through college. And what good will Latin and Greek do her then? If they taught you at college how to manage a man, there might be some sense in her going. Mrs. Harmon Andrews, so Avonlea gossip whispered, had never learned how to manage her man, and as a result the Andrews household was not exactly a model of domestic happiness. I see that the Charlottetown call to Mr. Allen is up before the Presbytery, said Mrs. Bell. That means we'll be losing him soon, I suppose. They're not all going before September, said Mrs. Sloane. It will be a great loss to the community, though I always did think that Mrs. Allen dressed rather too gay for a minister's wife. But we are none of us perfect. Did you notice how neat and snug Mr. Harrison looked today? I never saw such a changed man. He goes to church every Sunday and has subscribed to the salary. Hasn't that Paul Irvin grown to be a big boy? said Mrs. Andrews. He was such a mite for his age when he came here. I declare I hardly knew him today. He's getting to look a lot like his father. He's a very smart boy, said Mrs. Bell. He's smart enough, but... Mrs. Andrews lowered her voice. I believe he tells queer stories. Gracie came home from school one day last week with the greatest rigmarole he had told her about people who lived down at the shore. Stories that couldn't be a word of truth in, you know. I told Gracie not to believe them, and she said Paul didn't intend her to. But if he didn't, what did he tell them to her for? Anne says Paul is a genius, said Mrs. Sloane. He may be. You never know what to expect of them Americans, said Mrs. Andrews. Mrs. Andrews's only acquaintance with the word genius was derived from the colloquial fashion of calling any eccentric individual a queer genius. She probably thought, with Mary Joe that it meant a person with something wrong in his upper story. Back in the schoolroom, Anne was sitting alone at her desk, as she had sat on the first day of school two years before, her face leaning on her hand, her dewy eyes looking wistfully out of the window to the lake of shining waters. Her heart was so wrung over the parting with her pupils that for the moment college had lost all its charm. She still felt the clasp of Annetta Bell's arms about her neck and heard the childish wail, I'll never love any teacher as much as you, Miss Shirley, never, never. For two years, she had worked earnestly and faithfully, making many mistakes and learning from them. She had had her reward. 
She had taught her scholars something, but she felt that they had taught her much more. Lessons of tenderness, self-control, innocent wisdom, lore of childish hearts. Perhaps she had not succeeded in inspiring any wonderful ambitions in her pupils, but she had taught them, more by her own sweet personality than by all her careful precepts, that it was good and necessary in the years that were before them to live their lives finely and graciously, holding fast to truth and courtesy and kindness, keeping aloof from all that savored of falsehood and meanness and vulgarity. They were, perhaps, all unconscious of having learned such lessons, but they would remember and practice them long after they had forgotten the capital of Afghanistan and the dates of the Wars of the Roses. Another chapter in my life is closed, said Anne aloud as she locked her desk. She really felt very sad over it, but the romance and the idea of that closed chapter did comfort her a little. Anne spent a fortnight at Echo Lodge early in her vacation, and everybody concerned had a good time. She took Miss Lavender on a shopping expedition to town and persuaded her to buy a new organdy dress. Then came the excitement of cutting and making it together, while the happy Charlotte of the Fourth basted and swept up clippings. Miss Lavender had complained that she could not feel much interest in anything, but the sparkle came back to her eyes over her pretty dress. "'What a foolish, frivolous person I must be,' she sighed. "'I'm wholesomely ashamed to think that a new dress, even if it is a forget-me-not organdy, should exhilarate me so when a good conscience and an extra contribution to foreign missions couldn't do it.'" Midway in her visit, Anne went home to Green Gables for a day to mend the twins' stockings and settle up Davy's accumulated store of questions. In the evening, she went down to the shore road to see Paul Irving. As she passed by the low, square window of the Irving sitting room, she caught a glimpse of Paul on somebody's lap. But the next moment, he came flying through the hall. "'Oh, Miss Shirley!' he cried excitedly. "'You can't think what has happened! Something so splendid! Father is here! Just think of that! Father is here!' "'Come right in. Father, this is my beautiful teacher. You know father.' Stephen Irving came forward to meet Anne with a smile. He was a tall, handsome man of middle age, with iron-gray hair, deep-set dark blue eyes, and a strong, sad face, splendidly modeled about chin and brow. Just the face for a hero of romance, Anne thought with a thrill of intense satisfaction. It was so disappointing to meet someone who ought to be a hero and find him bald or stooped or otherwise lacking in manly beauty. Anne would have thought it dreadful if the object of Miss Lavender's romance had not looked the part. "'So, this is my little son's beautiful teacher of whom I have heard so much,' said Mr. Irving with a hearty handshake. "'Paul's letters have been so full of you, Miss Shirley, that I feel as if I were pretty well acquainted with you already. I want to thank you for what you have done for Paul. I think that your influence has been just what he needed.' Mother is one of the best and dearest of women, but her robust, matter-of-fact, scotch common sense could not always understand a temperament like my laddie's. What was lacking in her, you have supplied. Between you, I think Paul's training in these two past years has been as nearly ideal as a motherless boy's could be. Everybody likes to be appreciated. Under Mr. Irving's praise, Anne's face burst flower-like into rosy bloom, and the busy, weary man of the world looking at her, thought he had never seen a fairer, sweeter slip of girlhood than this little down-east schoolteacher, with her red hair and wonderful eyes. Paul sat between them, blissfully happy. "'I had never dreamed Father was coming,' he said radiantly. "'Even Grandma didn't know it. It was a great surprise.' 
As a general thing, Paul shook his brown curls gravely, I don't like to be surprised. You lose all the fun of expecting things when you're surprised. But in a case like this, it is all right. Father came last night after I had gone to bed. And after Grandma and Mary Jo had stopped being surprised, he and Grandma came upstairs to look at me, not meaning to wake me up till morning. But I woke right up and saw Father. I tell you, I just sprang at him. With a hug like a bear's, said Mr. Irving, putting his arm around Paul's shoulder smilingly. I hardly knew my boy. He had grown so big and brown and sturdy. I don't know which was the most pleased to see Father, Grandma or I, continued Paul. Grandma's been in the kitchen all day making the things Father likes to eat. She wouldn't trust them to marry Joe, she says. That's her way of showing gladness. I like best just to sit and talk to Father. But I'm going to leave you for a little while now, if you'll excuse me. I must get the cows for Mary Joe. That is one of my daily duties. When Paul had scampered away to do his daily duty, Mr. Irving talked to Anne of various matters. But Anne felt that he was thinking of something else underneath all the time. Presently it came to the surface. In Paul's last letter, he spoke of going with you to visit an old friend of mine, Miss Lewis, at the Stone House in Grafton. Do you know her well? Yes, indeed. She is a very dear friend of mine, was Anne's demure reply, which gave no hint of the sudden thrill that tingled over her from head to foot at Mr. Irving's question. Anne felt instinctively that romance was peeping at her around a corner. Mr. Irving rose and went to the window, looking out on a great golden billowing sea where a wild wind was harping. For a few moments there was silence in the little dark-walled room. Then he turned and looked down into Anne's sympathetic face with a smile half-whimsical, half-tender. "'I wonder how much you know,' he said. "'I know all about it,' replied Anne promptly. "'You see,' she explained hastily, Miss Lavender and I are very intimate. She wouldn't tell things of such a sacred nature to everybody. We are kindred spirits. Yes, I believe you are. Well, I am going to ask a favor of you. I would like to go and see Miss Lavender, if she will let me. Will you ask her if I may come? Would she not? Oh, indeed she would. Yes, this was romance, the very, the real thing, with all the charm of rhyme and story and dream. It was a little belated, perhaps, like a rose blooming in October, which should have bloomed in June, but nonetheless a rose, all sweetness and fragrance, with a gleam of gold in its heart. Never did Anne's feet bear her on a more willing errand than on that walk through the beech woods to Grafton the next morning. She found Miss Lavender in the garden. Anne was fearfully excited. Her hands grew cold and her voice trembled. Miss Lavender, I have something to tell you, something very important. Can you guess what it is? Anne never supposed that Miss Lavender could guess, but Miss Lavender's face grew very pale, and Miss Lavender said in a quiet, still voice, from which all the color and sparkle that Miss Lavender's voice usually suggested had faded. Stephen Irving is home. How did you know? Who told you? cried Anne disappointedly, vexed that her great revelation had been anticipated. Nobody. I knew that must be it, just from the way you spoke. He wants to come and see you, said Anne. May I send him word that he may? Yes, of course, fluttered Miss Lavender. There is no reason why he shouldn't. He is only coming as any old friend might. 
Anne had her own opinion about that, as she hastened into the house to write a note at Miss Lavender's desk. Oh, it's delightful to be living in a storybook, she thought gaily. It will come out all right, of course. It must. And Paul will have a mother after his own heart, and everybody will be happy. But Mr. Irving will take Miss Lavender away. And dear knows what will happen to this little stone house. And so there are two sides to it, as there seems to be to everything in this world. The important note was written, and Anne herself carried it to the Grafton Post Office, where she waylaid the mail carrier and asked him to leave it at the Avonlea office. "'It's so very important,' Anne assured him anxiously. The mail carrier was a rather grumpy old personage, who did not look at all like the part of a messenger of Cupid, and Anne was none too certain that his memory was to be trusted. But he said he would do his best to remember, and she had to be contented with that.' Charlotta the Fourth felt that some mystery pervaded the stone house that afternoon, a mystery from which she was excluded. Miss Lavender roamed about the garden in a distracted fashion. Anne, too, seemed possessed by a demon of unrest, and walked to and fro and went up and down. Charlotta the Fourth endured it till patience ceased to be a virtue. Then she confronted Anne on the occasion of that romantic young person's third aimless peregrination through the kitchen. "'Please, Miss Shirley, ma'am,' said Charlotta the Fourth, with an indignant toss of her very blue bows. "'It's plain to see you and Miss Lavender have got a secret, and I think—begging your pardon if I'm too forward, Miss Shirley, ma'am—that it's real mean not to tell me when we've all been such chums. Oh, Charlotta, dear, I'd have told you all about it if it were my secret, but it's Miss Lavender's, you see. However, I'll tell you this much, and if nothing comes of it, you must never breathe a word about it to a living soul. You see— Prince Charming is coming tonight. He came long ago, but in a foolish moment went away, and wandered afar and forgot the secret of the magic pathway to the enchanted castle, where the princess was weeping her faithful heart out for him. But at last he remembered it again, and the princess is waiting still, because nobody but her own dear prince could carry her off. Oh, Miss Shirley, ma'am, what is that in prose? gasped the mystified Charlotta. Anne laughed. In prose, an old friend of Miss Lavender's is coming to see her tonight. Do you mean an old beau of hers? demanded the literal Charlotta. That is probably what I do mean, in prose, answered Anne gravely. It is Paul's father, Stephen Irving. And goodness knows what will come of it, but let us hope for the best, Charlotta. I hope that he'll marry Miss Lavender, was Charlotta's unequivocal response. Some women's intended from the start to be old maids, and I'm afraid I'm one of them, Miss Shirley, ma'am, because I've awful little patience with the men. But Miss Lavender never was, and I've been awful worried, thinking what on earth she'd do when I got so big I'd have to go to Boston. There ain't any more girls in our family, and dear knows what she'd do if she got some stranger that might laugh at her pretendings and leave things lying round out of their place and not be willing to be called Charlotte the Fifth. She might get someone who wouldn't be as unlucky as me in breaking dishes, but she'd never get anyone who'd love her better. And the faithful little handmaiden dashed to the oven door with a sniff. They went through the form of having tea as usual that night at Echo Lodge, but nobody really ate anything. After tea, Miss Lavender went to her room and put on her new forget-me-not organdy, while Anne did her hair for her. Both were dreadfully excited. But Miss Lavender pretended to be very calm and indifferent. I must really mend that rent in the curtain tomorrow, she said anxiously, 
inspecting it as if it were the only thing of any importance just then. Those curtains have not worn as well as they should, considering the price I paid. Dear me, Charlotta has forgotten to dust the stair railing again. I really must speak to her about it. Anne was sitting on the porch steps when Stephen Irving came down the lane and across the garden. This is the one place where time stands still, he said, looking round him with delighted eyes. There is nothing changed about this house or garden since I was here twenty-five years ago. It makes me feel young again. You know time always does stand still in an enchanted palace, said Anne seriously. It is only when the prince comes that things begin to happen. Mr. Irving smiled a little sadly into her uplifted face, all a star with its youth and promise. Sometimes the prince comes too late, he said. He did not ask Anne to translate her remark into prose. Like all kindred spirits, he understood. Oh no, not if he is the real prince coming to the true princess, said Anne, shaking her red head decidedly as she opened the parlor door. When he had gone in, she shut it tightly behind him and turned to confront Charlotta the Fourth, who was in the hall, all nods and becks and wreathed smiles. Oh, Miss Shirley, ma'am, she breathed. I peeked from the kitchen window, and he's awful handsome, and just the right age for Miss Lavender. And oh, Miss Shirley, ma'am, do you think it would be much harm to listen at the door? It would be dreadful, Charlotta, said Anne firmly, so just you come away with me out of the reach of temptation. I can't do anything, and it's awful to hang round just waiting, sighed Charlotta. What if you don't propose after all, Miss Shirley, ma'am? You can never be sure of them men. My oldest sister, Charlotta I, thought she was engaged to one once. But it turned out he had a different opinion, and she says she'll never trust one of them again. And I heard of another case where a man thought he wanted one girl awful bad when it was really her sister he wanted all the time. When a man doesn't know his own mind, Miss Shirley, ma'am, how's a poor woman going to be sure of it? "'We'll go to the kitchen and clean the silver spoons,' said Anne. "'That's a task which won't require much thinking, fortunately. "'For I couldn't think tonight. "'And it will pass the time.' "'It passed an hour. "'Then, just as Anne laid down the last shining spoon, "'they heard the front door shut. "'Both sought comfort fearfully in each other's eyes. "'Oh, Miss Shirley, ma'am,' gasped Charlotta. "'If he's going away this early, there's nothing into it, and never will be.' They flew to the window. Mr. Irving had no intention of going away. He and Miss Lavender were strolling slowly down the middle path to the stone bench. "'Oh, Miss Shirley, ma'am, he's got his arm around her waist,' whispered Charlotta the Fourth delightedly. "'He must have proposed to her, or she'd never allow it.' Anne caught Charlotta the Fourth by her own plump waist and danced her around the kitchen until they were both out of breath. "'Oh, Charlotta!' she cried gaily. I'm neither a prophetess nor the daughter of a prophetess, but I'm going to make a prediction. There'll be a wedding in this old stone house before the maple leaves are red. Do you want that translated into prose, Charlotta? No, I can understand that, said Charlotta. A wedding ain't poetry. Why, Miss Shirley, ma'am, you're crying. What for? Oh, because it's all so beautiful and storybookish and romantic and sad, said Anne winking the tears out of her eyes. It's all perfectly lovely, but there's a little sadness mixed up in it, too, somehow. Oh, of course, there's a risk in marrying anybody, conceded Charlotte the Fourth. But when all's said and done, Miss Shirley, ma'am, there's many a worse thing than a husband. 
All right, and that's where we're going to leave it tonight. This was another kind of extra long installment because of these long chapters towards the end. But we only have two chapters left, and so our next installment is going to be the last one. So thank you again for listening to Rob Reads to You. Come back next time, and we will be finishing up Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. It only took five years. Well, thank you all very much, and have a good night. <laughs>